Heavenly Father, we thank you today for this great good news of the gospel and pray that we might be those who hear it clearly, humble our hearts and our minds, that we may know Jesus and his saving love because we ask it for his namesake. Amen. On April the 10th, 1912, a ship set sail from Southampton for New York. She was the largest ship ever, the second of only three Olympic-class ocean liners. She was the fastest ship ever, three large propellers and the ability, amazingly, to speed at up to 23 knots. She was the most expensive ship ever, carrying the rich and the famous of her day, with Lloyds of London insuring her for a staggering $133 million. She was the most luxurious ship ever, first-class accommodation designed as the pinnacle of comfort and luxury with a gymnasium and a swimming pool, libraries and high-class restaurants and opulent cabins. And she was the safest ship ever, so much so that lifeboats had only been fitted for half the passengers with advanced safety features, watertight containers, and remotely activated watertight doors. As she was being built at the building docks, Harland and Wolfe in Belfast, one of the builders put up a sign which read this, I defy God to sink this ship. Four days into crossing, Captain Edward Smith received a series of warnings from other ships of drifting ice in the Grand Banks of Newfoundlands. But he ignored them and continued to steam at full steam ahead towards New York. On April the 14th, 375 miles south of Newfoundlands, the Titanic hit ice at 20 to midnight ship's time. The collision caused the hull plates to buckle inwards along her starboard side, and six of her 16 watertight compartments were opened to the sea. She could only sustain four. Somebody was overheard to ask one of the deckhands, is everything all right? He said, God himself could not sink this ship. Distress signals were sent by wireless rockets and lamps, but none of the ships were close enough. The nearest was the Carpathia, but she was four hours away at minimum. And so in the icy waters of the Atlantic, 1,500 people perished that night. Because the lesson is appearances can be deceptive. And that's Jesus' point as we turn this morning to this interesting parable he teaches in Luke 18 and verse 9. It's an extraordinary parable with two very shocking points, yet it opens in a very ordinary way. Two men go to church for the service to pray. An extraordinary story opens in a very normal way. 
And in verse 11, the camera closes in on our first man, a Pharisee. In the ancient world, the Pharisee stood as the very personification of morality, a paragon of virtue. Pharisees were scrupulous about religious observance, and they took deep pride in their extreme piety. Indeed, the word Pharisee comes from a a word meaning the separated out ones. They socially distanced themselves from anybody who was immoral so as to avoid any kind of contamination. They crossed the road to avoid non-Jewish, unclean believers. And they took the 613 commandments of God in the Old Testament, and then they developed a whole complicated body of case law in the Mishnah as the lawyers drafted layer upon layer of regulation and rule to ensure that all 613 of those laws were more than kept all day, every day, from Sabbath observance to food laws to clothing stipulations. So the Pharisee comes to church. He's with us here this morning, a pillar of our community. Had he been a member of our church, he would be the most regular at Bible studies. He would have signed up for Wednesday Central. He would have been one of the biggest financial donors in that collection plate that was just passed around. Not only would he have been on the board of elders, he would have been the chairman and a major charitable donor out in the community. We would look at him as the most biblically literate, spiritually zealous in the whole of our church. But there's something wrong. There's something dangerously wrong. And it's our first point, if you have those sheets in front of us, the insider who's out. He stands and prays, verse 11, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, verse 12, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on all that I get. He stood up and prayed about himself, though the Greek is actually slightly different. He got up and prayed to himself. So it's not really a prayer, more a soliloquy, and it boomerangs back because it never actually reaches heaven. And in the space of just one verse, there are five references to himself. I thank you that I'm not like other people. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on all that I get. What he does is to deploy two clever techniques to camouflage his own guilt and to bolster his own self of righteousness. Here's the first. He deliberately chooses to compare himself to people who are worse than him, morally speaking. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a robber. I'm not a terrorist. I'm not a drug baron. And I'm not a pedophile, a smokescreen, a defensive shield, behind which now he can conceal his many other sins and placate his own conscience. But his choice is deliberate. He doesn't choose people who are better than him morally, and he certainly doesn't choose to compare himself 
to God, who is perfect in his purity. He looks down on others in order to look better than them. And it's what children do all the time. Have you noticed that? When a kid is in trouble, um, little Johnny is in trouble. He's been mean to his sister, Jenny. And the plea in mitigation is always the same when he's in trouble. What does Johnny say in mitigation? Well, I'm not as bad as my other brother, Jake. Jake pulled her hair. I was only a little bit mean. He's worse than me. But it's not just kids, is it? It's what we all do. It's why we love to watch the news and read the sordid headlines. So I can say, I'm not a Jeffrey Epstein. I'm not a Maxwell Ghislaine. I haven't trafficked children. I'm not like that congressman. I haven't had an affair. I've never defrauded the IRS. I'm not an ISIS terrorist. This is us by nature. Because ever since the Garden of Eden, the essence of sin is wanting to be in the rights and to be right in myself. So we live in rebellion against God. We shake our fists at him and say, no, I'm not going to live your way. We know in our consciences that we are wrong, but we love to believe we are right. It's like the Sunday school lesson where after teaching this parable, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, the Sunday school teacher ended by saying, now children, let's give thanks to God that we're not like the Pharisee. But we are. We prefer, though, to think of the universe like a moral skyscraper. On the hundredth floor are really amazing people, Mother Teresa and the Pope and people like that, nurses, charity workers. In the ground floor, down below ground, uh, is the scum of society, pimps and pedophiles. And we, well, we're not exactly a saint up on the top floor, but I'm not exactly an Adolf Hitler. I'm somewhere on the 67th floor. Not perfect, but good enough. Well, better than everybody down on the first floor. There's a second trick he deploys. Did you notice it? It is in verse 12 where he takes all the minor areas of obedience and tries to blow them out of all proportion. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. What he does here is to shift from the focus on the big law, the, the big law of God, which is impossible to keep, and he gets the spyglass out to try and magnify the tiny little rules and regulations which he can keep to make them look bigger than they really are. So I fast twice a week, but the law of God commanded you should fast only once a year at Yom Kippur on the annual Day of Atonement. And I give a tenth of all that I get right down to the herbs in my garden, but God said you only need to give a tenth of your income, yet we do the same. We ignore the hard law, which we can't keep, and we choose the little rules we can keep, and then we blow them out of all proportion. So we say to ourselves, 
I do come to church. I have kept the speed limit. I do tithe faithfully every week at church. Tick, tick, tick. But how do we get on with God's perfect law, with all of its demands? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul and with all your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. None of us have done it. None of us can do it. I am exposed by God's law, broken by God's law, humbled by God's law, undone by God's law. The law of God in the hands of a sinner is like a mirror in the hands of the hunchback of Notre Dame. There you are. See how disfigured and ugly you are. The law of God in the hands of a sinner is like a copy of the penal code in the hands of a condemned criminal. There, just see what a desperate felon you are. The law of God in the hands of a sinner it is like an MRI in the hands of a patient with an aggressive tumor and multiple organ failure. But the Pharisee's mistake is to misunderstand the reason why God's law is given. It wasn't given as a, as a tick box exercise so I can tick off all the little rules I've done. It was a loving gift from a gracious God to show us just how sick we are that we might be healed and forgiven by the grace and the mercy of God through his treatment plan at the cross. This man, this Pharisee, is like a man going to the doctor for his annual health check. And he walks in and he walks into the doctor's office and he sits down and he says, doctor, I need you to know that I'm in superb health. My lungs are functioning perfectly. My muscle tone is superb. My digestion couldn't be better. My circulation is I1. I have no infections, no ailments, no diseases. In short, doctor, unlike all those miserable specimens out in the waiting area, I'm fine. What can the doctor do? What can the doctor do as he picks up his sheet and says, well, according to the results, your blood pressure is dangerously high, your oxygen saturation is dangerously low, and we do need to do some tests quickly on that mysterious lump in your neck. And by the way, did you know that you were a diabetic? But his complacency doesn't invite such an examination. He's a self-preening peacock, this man. And he hasn't come to church to seek God's mercy, but to parade his merits. He's like the queen from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? And for him, church is not a hospital for sinners. It's a spiritual beauty parade. As he looks down on everybody else and says, I'm not like them. One of the things we used to have to do at PE at school was the high jump, and I always loathed it. 
because the teacher was uh, a serious athlete and he put the bar really high. None of us could actually get over the bar. Um, we would flay over like a flayed whale and sort of be beached on the other side with the thing collapsing on our heads. While he wasn't looking one day, I vividly remember one of my friends lowering the bar. And amazingly, as the bar was lowered without him realizing, we all managed to scale it. But you see, that's what we do with the law of God. That's the Pharisee's mistake. The insider who's out. In verse 13, we meet the second person, the second church member who's just arrived. And the camera closes in on this different man with a very different approach to God, with a very different prayer. It's the second shock, actually. The outsider who's in. The tax collector, verse 13, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This tax collector is not just a civil servant working for the IRS, as bad as that might be. This is much worse. In the ancient world, the tax collector was the epitome of disgust. They were reviled by the Jews of Jesus' day because of their perceived greed, but worse, their collaboration with the Roman occupiers. Do you know what they did? They actually took money off their own people. They fleeced them and then paid it to the Romans to fund the ongoing occupation and oppression of the people of God. They took duties on imports and exports. They traveled from town to town and stood at the booths. They were infamous for strong-arming money out of the poor, thugs, I suppose loan sharks. They were social pariahs. Tax collectors were actually forbidden from entering into synagogues. They were social and religious outcasts. They were the most hated and despised individuals in Israel, deemed in the law lower even than the Herodians and the Roman soldiers, regarded on the same level as prostitutes and pimps. They stood as the personification of shame. I suppose the equivalent today would be the child sex trafficker, drug baron, the serial rapist, the ISIS suicide bomber, low lives, fit, if we're honest, for nothing but the execution chamber. This man comes to church. He's aware of his need. He beats his breast, a sign of profound emotional distress and contrition. He's broken in the eyes of God. And his prayer is not consumed by merit, but shame. Look at his body language, the non-verbal communication. He stands at a distance. Actually, he's out in the court of the Gentiles, outside the temple. He beats his breast, an Old Testament sign of shame and contrition, and he can't even look up to heaven, but down to the floor and his feet. His guilt is not a feeling that the psychoanalyst needs to help him with on the sofa, his guilt is real in an objective way. 
before God. But the difference between these two men is so stark. The Pharisee stands, the tax collector is bowed. The the Pharisee parades his merits. The tax collector pleads for mercy. And the original Greek is very striking. It's not so much God have mercy on me, but God be propitious to me. And that word propitious comes from the word propitiation. It's a very important Bible word to learn and know. God be propitious to me. Because propitiation is when anger I deserve is turned away from me and satisfied somewhere else. When you forget your anniversary and your wife is angry, she does need to have the anger turned away. There needs to be a propitiation. Is it flowers or chocolates or another date or something like that? But this is temple language. It's the language of sacrifice. He's asking for God's anger at him, his rightful anger to be appeased and satisfied so that this sinner might be accepted into the presence of God. Oh God, be propitious to me, not a sinner, but the sinner. But how? How can God's anger be propitiated? And the clue comes in terms of where this man is standing. He's come to the temple for the hour of prayer. And as he's praying this prayer out in the court of the Gentiles, in the inner sanctum, in the Holy of Holies, an elaborate and gory ritual is underway. As the priests take a heifer and kill the animal in a grotesque ceremony full of bloods, And as the priests do that, and as the people see something of that, they know that God has promised that he will be propitious and take away our sin through the sacrifice of another whose bloods must be shed. From a distance, this man way back is looking in in faith into the inner sanctum. This isn't wishful thinking. Please, God, Can I appeal to your better nature? Forgive me. What he's actually doing is not appealing to God's better nature, but appealing to God's promise. For God is a God of justice, yes, but mercy as well. And in the mercy of God, the promise was that through the sacrifice of another, through this animal, there could be forgiveness for sin as God's anger and our guilt is taken away. In a previous life, I ministered to college students in different cities in the UK. And I remember one of them coming to me with guilt. That night, in that room, with that girl, all those years ago, he spoke to me of his shame and his guilt. In tears, he asked me, what what can I do? How can I get this off my mind and out of my conscience? It had been torturing him for 15 years. I spoke to him of the death of Jesus at Calvary. I explained that Jesus had died at Calvary as the innocent one and that all his guilt and shame had been transferred to Christ and that the punishment of God that he deserved had fallen on Christ 
and that Christ had been raised from the dead. And therefore, that trusting in Christ and being strangely united to Christ meant that not only had all of his guilt been taken away, but all of the perfection of Jesus had been given to him. So that now, whether he felt guilt or not, the reality is that he stood in perfection through this great exchange, this swap, as Jesus takes all that is mine, my sin, and gives me all that is his, his perfection. And in tears, he came to Christ. I then asked him to write out everything he'd ever done that was on his conscience. I said, I don't want to see it. You put it on that bit of paper. And then we went outside, and I got a lighter and lit a match, and we watched as it all disappeared to be blown away in the ashes forever. And I said, so now, gone, all gone, and forever gone. Verse 14, this man, this tax collector, he went to his house justified rather than the other. And that word justified is not a temple word, it's actually a courtroom word. It belongs in the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C. To be justified means to be in the right with the judge. If you like, it's the verdict of the future brought into the present. If you're trusting in Jesus, no matter who you are or what you've done, if you're trusting in Jesus' death at the cross of Calvary, in his shed blood, you're justified. That is to say, all shame and guilt has gone, and you have been declared right in the now and forever by his saving death at Calvary. There's something strange though, isn't there? And it's a shocking and sobering truth. The Pharisee went home feeling righteous, but he was under the condemnation of God's. And I'm reckoning the tax collector went home feeling wretched. But in the eyes of God and in the court of heaven, justified. Yesterday, I was the unfortunate victim of an extraordinary scam. I was trying to book a car rental, and I was told that the way to get this amazing deal was to go to CVS or Rite Aid to get what's called a green dot credit card voucher, load on $316, call the number back, they'll take the number, the voucher, and then the amazing deal is that you can get the car at the amazing price of $160 for three days, and it will be delivered to your house by 6.30 tonight, and then collected when you finish. Oh, that was amazing. So I got the card, I filled it in, I called it back. He then called later and said, unfortunately, the payment's not gone through. Um, could you go back to Rite Aid and now get an eBay card and repeat the exercise? I said, well, that's strange. If the first one didn't go through, why will the second one? Different system. Just do what you can and call me back. My name is Frank. So I did it, I called Frank back. I said, yeah, I've loaded up another $316, Frank, and uh, here's the number and here's the code, and thank you very much. The car will be on its way within half an hour. I said, half an hour? I thought it was coming from Philadelphia, that's an hour. No, no, it'll be with you in half an hour. The car never arrived. I suddenly realized I've been scammed. 
I called the number back, blocked, because now they didn't want to hear from me again. I called the police. They arrived. They said, you know, there is nothing that you will be able to do to get the $630 back. You've been defrauded. And as the news of that broke, I felt such indignation and anger towards this man, Frank, who had stolen 630 and actually inconvenienced my week. And I thought to myself, what a disgusting human being. And I'm glad I don't live like that. And I'm glad I'm not like him. And then I suddenly thought, I'm preaching on the tax collector and the Pharisee tomorrow, and I am like him. So I called him back on a different number from the church office. They didn't recognize the number, so he picked up. I said, Frank, do you fear God? Frank, do you believe theft is right? And he hung up on me. But the call is going to come again this week from another line, and I'm going to tell Frank the gospel of Jesus' grace. Because the great news of the gospel is that it is for low lives like Frank and Tony. This parable is a warning to those like me by nature who look down on others. Verse 14, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. As news of the Titanic uh, reached England, anxious relatives and friends began to line up outside the White Star Liner Company in Southampton for news of their relatives. And a board was put on the docks. And every so often, a clerk would come out and take the name and put it on the board. But there were only two columns, known to be lost and known to be saved. And it's like that with the kingdom of heaven, and it's like that here today. There are only two columns, lost or saved. And your name is in one or the other, and the basis of where it sits has nothing to do with your merits. Because heaven is not for good people. It's for forgiven people. We need to humble ourselves and ask God for his mercy. And the promise is, no matter who we are or what we have done, it's secured through the saving death of Jesus on the cross. It may well be that you've heard this for the very first time this morning. We're delighted you're with us. We'd love you to come back to our second guest service just next week as we look at another one of Jesus' parables as we think about the generosity of God forgiveness, and mercy. If you are somebody who wants to find out more about this, as Michael said earlier on, come to that course called Hope Explored. You can see that it begins in just a few weeks' time, uh, number four on your sheets there, the 26th of September. But it may well be that there are one or two, three or four, who are here this morning, who've heard God speak, who feel the guilt, and long to come to Christ, and for that reason, I'm going to end by praying a prayer. It's actually on your sheets. And if you'll join me in the prayer, it's a prayer for anyone who wants to come to Jesus, to his mercy and grace, to escape the eternity we deserve in hell for the eternity we don't deserve by God's grace in heaven. This is the prayer. I'll read it 
and then second time around, I'll ask you to pray it with me. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I'm guilty of rebelling against you, and I deserve your judgment. Thank you that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. Please forgive me, and by your Spirit, help me to live a new life under the rule of Jesus, your Son. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I'm guilty of rebelling against you, and I deserve your judgments. Thank you that Jesus died for my sins and rose again from the dead. Please forgive me, and by your spirits, help me to live a new life under the rule of Jesus, your Son. Amen.